Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dan Bulk, author of Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census, and How to Read Them. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on the show. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. So I'm a historian. I uh, think of myself as someone who tries to research the history of bureaucracies, quantification systems that to the outsider might appear boring, but are really crucial to organizing how it is that modern life works and that have kind of profound implications for how it is that we understand ourselves, how we identify ourselves as individuals, and how those kind of possibilities have changed over time. So I wrote my first book called How Our Days Became Numbered about the life insurance industry, in which I was interested in how it was that American life insurers had constructed techniques for thinking about individuals statistically, how they created means for justifying discrimination based on race, and how they built an industry around the valuation of individual lives. I didn't expect to then write my second book about the census. I was instead going off looking for a different kind of story but as I got into the National Archives, trying to to work on that book, which is going to be a book about the baby boom, the idea of the baby boom and the idea of the baby boomer, I was working through census materials and discovered this dramatic story in these records that I had always thought were only facts, right? You th- we think of the census as something that produces a simple set of facts that we then used to govern, used to do our work as historians or sociologists. And it is that. But as I kind of dug through the materials, I came to realize there was a lot of drama. There was a, a many, many stories hidden behind those numbers. Now, you talk about the question men. Tell us more about these question men and what were their objectives? Many of the people listening to this podcast, who I I take to be sociologists especially, but anyone else who's done anything with data, recognizes that the numbers, when we get them, are based on questions that somebody had to come up with, somebody had to decide. Whenever we look at a data system, when we look at a, a table of figures, Behind them is a story of some group of people who were in a room together and got to decide that these were the things, the parts of the world on which we would shine a light, that uh, some set of categories were the possible categories that one could use, and that a certain set of answers were going to be deemed acceptable types of answers. So whenever we think about a data system, it's really important to understand who was behind it, who were those people in the room. I didn't think I was going to be able to answer that question in any substantial depth about the 1940 census for quite a long time. I really hoped that I could, but it was only toward the very end of my period of archival research that I 
to to my delight, finally found a series of documents, a folder uh, in the papers of the director of the census, in which I found detailed minutes explaining a meeting that took place in March of 1939. It was um, chaired by a life insurance official, uh, Louis Dublin, who was also an important public intellectual of the time. And he had taken the train down from New York to Washington, D.C., met in the relatively new Department of Commerce building in the auditorium, in which he then convened a group of people. I call them the question men because they were almost entirely men. There were only a a couple, a handful of women, uh, one of whom we can get to a little bit later here. They, those men, many of them came from the Census Bureau. Many of them then also came from what was an expanding federal government. I think of them as the ABCs of the New Deal, the uh, administrations, boards like the Social Security Board and commissions like the Trade Commission. These uh, individuals were all coming together to, to try to think about what the census, how the census would make possible the New Deal's more kind of activist take on governing economic policy. Big business was there. Uh, we see the the chairman of Sears Roebuck, who I think of as like the Jeff Bezos of his day, um, really interested in thinking about census data so as to figure out how to uh, run this really important mail order uh, firm. We see labor leaders there, including one Margaret Scattergood, one of these women who's a really has an interesting story of her own. And then there were academics. There were um, people like Frank Notstein, who will be familiar to many people in demography as an important figure there at the Princeton Office of Population Research. And then with those figures, also people from philanthropy who were funding much of that early population research. Uh, it's important to note that the uh, census director, when asked if it would be important or useful to have someone in the room uh, who is uh, African-American or anyone who wasn't white, in fact, he said, no, that's not necessary. And this was deemed true by others as well. So this is a room entirely of white individuals, mostly men, who then are going to make these ultimate decisions. You know, in your book, you tell the story about Margaret Scattergood. Um, she was in the room. And also tell us about her story. So I was interested in her to begin with, as she was uh, one of the few women who showed up in this room. Uh, but in general, as one of the things I, I do in the book was I, I wanted to portray all of these individuals, all of the question men, using the modes of representation that they had defined. So I went, uh, I have some uh, research assistants in in my history lab at Colgate, some undergraduates who were really uh, wonderful researchers working with me. And we went and tried to dig up the census records for each of the individuals in that room making those decisions. And when we found Margaret Scattergood's record, we found her living with... Florence Thorne, and with May Stotts. I make sure I'm getting those names those names right. 
And when we looked at the census records indicating who these people were, so Florence Thorne was listed under the relation column as head of the household. Margaret Scattergood was listed second as partner. And then May Stotts Allen was listed third as maid. Uh, in the race categories, uh, Florence and Margaret are listed as white. And then there's an uh, NEG indicating Negro, the census category for African-American for May Stotts Allen, who was the main maid in this household. Now, that relation of partner stuck out to me. This is something that I had begun to research uh, when a colleague had asked me about uh, this category, this label as it surfaced in some other places. And right, it's evocative immediately. One sees this word partner, which for us today implies, um, can imply romantic relationships, certainly certain kinds of intimate relationships. And so we see Florence and Margaret, in this case, living together. It turns out some Washington Post reporters had also been interested in the story uh, because the house that uh, Florence Thorne and Margaret Scattergood lived in was later sold to and repurposed as a conference center for the CIA in Langley, Virginia. Uh, and the the pair continued to live in it for many years, even after it was being taken over by the CIA and were uh, they, such that Margaret Scattergood in later years would explain that her role as a researcher for the American Federation of Labor made her akin to a intelligence agent, but for the uh, for the unions instead of for the uh, for the federal government, so the CIA official. But so these reporters talked to family members, and none of them understood Florence and Margaret to have had a uh, sexual or intimate relationship. They had always lived together, and so there's no evidence one way or the other that these are um, in a sexually queer household. And yet it's a queer household nonetheless, in the sense that these question men assumed that the head of household would be a man. Indeed, the punch cards that they produced had head as a, as a possibility. And then instead of spouse, it had WF for wife. So it was assumed that any kind of spouse or any, any person who was related by marriage to a head of household was going to be a woman and in the role of wife rather than... Uh, even having the possibility of, for instance, a husband being uh, the spouse and the, the wife being the head of household. So to have uh, these two women living together was in its own way a queer household, something unexpected. And as I as I looked through the census, I came to find that this category, the partner, recurred over and over again. It tended to come in clumps in different spaces. And as I would dig in and read the census records around those spaces, it became a way also of trying to see how it was the people who tended to be, to live in, in either marginal places or kind of in the margins of society, how they were recorded in the census, how people who might otherwise not really fit in the preconceptions of the, the census men's sheets, how they could still be recorded and have their place in history and their place in the, the numbers um, preserved. Uh, there were so many hidden stories in the 1940s. Would you like to share one in particular? Oh, 
golly. Yeah. There's, um, well, how would I ask you? What do you have a, a favorite that, uh, I like the, the information about the Great Migration and the Dust Bowl refugees. Those were interesting stories. So when we think of this period between 1930 and 1940, I mean, much of the culture of that moment, uh, it evokes for us these federally sponsored projects, the Farm Security Administration, Dorothea Lang, taking famous photos like Migrant Mother, we think of these uh, films by Pere Lorenz of the dust that broke the plains, thinking about the Dust Bowl migrations. I think of Woody Guthrie's um, Dust Bowl ballads, some of my favorite songs. Uh, there was, as I was researching this, I would often uh, spend some time in the National Archives. And then once the archives would close, I would wander up to the Smithsonian's Museum of American Art and there was a painting called Subway by Lily Ferretti, who uh, painted this in 1934 with the support of the Works Progress Administration, which was one of these major New Deal programs that supported the work of artists. And it depicts a subway very much like the A train that I ride all the time here in Manhattan. Uh, and it was this kind of a lovely evocation of American society, multicultural, multiracial, diverse, uh, a kind of love song to this subway space. And all of those, uh, as I was writing this book, I would often think about those those kinds of depictions of America and think about how the census itself was also a depiction of America, also one committed at its best towards preserving every single person, towards affirming that every single individual counts. Uh, it didn't always do this by any means, um, but it it could, when it was really working, affirm the dignity of the nation and of its inhabitants the same way that many of these different pieces of art art did. But to your point, I mean, one thing that we can we can do when we look at a census sheet is over time the questions the census asks tell us stories about the societies that produce those sheets and what they are concerned about. So if one looks at a census sheet from the late 19th century, the early 20th century, a lot of the, the real estate, a lot of the, the places on the physical paper are filled by columns devoted to where people and their parents were from, where they were born, the languages that they spoke growing up. And this is very closely tied to the way in which the United States from the 1870s through the 1920s was deeply concerned with and debating the role and the place of immigration in the construction of American society. And indeed, from the 1870s through the 1920s, we see debates around and then the passage of, over time, quite strict immigration restrictions beginning for um, people coming from Asia in the 1870s on through to the 1920s when very strict, broader uh, immigration restrictions are passed for people coming from outside of the Western Hemisphere. And so after that, as, as this, this period of immigration restriction has been um, is put in place by these new laws, immigration becomes less of a concern for people who are writing the census because there are fewer people who are uh, migrating to the United States, at least from outside of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, 
And instead, we see different kinds of concerns showing up in the census records and on these census sheets. One set of those columns have to do with internal migration, to your point. So um, people in the federal government, people in state governments are deeply concerned about the extent to which people might be moving from one place in the United States to another part of the United States. And so they they start asking and produce a series of columns to ask where a person who was enumerated in 1940 was in 1935 as part of this attempt to get a broader set of data to understand those migrations, which could then capture some of those um, these momentous and uh, and much understood and much kind of lauded migrations that were taking place in this period, such as the the great is one part of the great migration that had begun uh, around the time of World War One for African Americans moving to big cities or moving west and north, or similarly the way that in which many farmers um, from the Great Plains moved to California and to other places during the 1930s, driven in part by environmental disaster and also driven by capitalist disaster, by the the great uh, difficulties that came with the Great Depression. Now, let's back back and go to the 1850 census, the age of the first person singular, and then the only free person. Uh, Tell us about that. So when we think about a census, we probably think of it as a count of people, which it is. And yet the, the, the thing that often goes unstated, and again, this might be obvious to many sociologists, but it was a surprise to me when I really stopped to think about it, is that the census, even to this, to this day, is organized around a set of households. Now, that's one reason why the... Uh, the partner, for instance, category exists, why there had to be these relation categories was because before a person can be counted as an individual, they have to be placed within a household. But in the very earliest censuses, people, while they were counted as individuals, were seldom named as individuals in those censuses. The only people who would be named in the first censuses were the heads of household and everyone else when they appeared, would appear only as a tally mark. That changes in 1850. And we might we're, be tempted to say, oh, well, this, this must reflect some way in which the I, individual identity has come to be something more significant or really more important by 1850. And there's probably something to that. And yet the, the work of historians... Um, who have kind of investigated this before me, uh, especially Patricia Klein-Cohen, revealed that in fact, it has, that transition had as much as anything to do with what we might think of as a kind of a, a data management problem, that as Congress and the government got more interested in using the census to gather a wide variety of information, it it kept kind of increasing the number of columns in which tallies had to be made. And as you started to try to account for a given family, more and more pieces of information, it made it harder and harder to do that accurately. In particular, in 1840, there was a very significant controversy 
because the results of that census appeared to show that in the North, free people of color um, were substantially more likely to be insane than in anywhere else or even in the broader population. Now, in the 1840s, in the midst of the growing crisis over slavery and the controversies over slavery between the North and the South, this proved to be terrific fodder for those who wanted to support slavery, claiming that people who had previously been enslaved or African-Americans outside of slavery could not live in a modern society while maintaining their sanity. So this was part of an ongoing set of tropes and arguments that claimed that outside of slavery, uh, people of African descent were destined for either uh, insanity, the loss of faculties, or even eventual extinction. Clearly, I hope it will go without saying, but I will say it, this was not true on, in any counts. All this was not true. Uh, but this was a, a, a common trope, particularly for those who wanted to support slavery. And so these census records appeared briefly to support that kind of argument. On investigation, researchers uh, in Massachusetts digging through these records realized that uh, the problem was one involving how it was the census takers were enumerating people who were said to be insane or otherwise in, incapable of taking care of themselves. And essentially there had been a mass set of errors because these census enumerators working on these forms had repeatedly tried to fill in that there were people who were insane or otherwise um, couldn't take care of the incapacitated, couldn't take care of themselves, needed to be wards of the state who were white. And because they were misreading these forms were indicating them under the place for people who were um, uh, labeled as not white, or um, I can't remember exactly what the category was. But so as a result, even in towns in which there were no African-American residents, there would be many people listed as insane and people of color. So it was statistical impossibilities. And what they, what they came to realize over time was that this was a result of these forms being simply now too difficult to fill out. And the result then in 1850 was this move towards saying every single person should be named and then the attributes of each person should be recorded singularly. This shrank the form substantially and made it much more, uh, Im improved the capacity of individuals to accurately record ab information about individuals. In chapter four, you talk about counting with friends. Tell us about the scandal and who got jobs at the census. So. To this day, uh, the census is a massive operation. It, people who run the census often talk about it as one of the great mobilizations outside of wartime of Americans to do this really enormous, amazing job of having to go out and count all of their fellows. Now, I was particularly interested in trying to understand who it was that was doing this counting. In 1940, there were 120,000 enumerators. 
anyone who is listening to this, who's spent any time looking at census records, either as a researcher or as a maybe a family researcher, someone who's been doing genealogical research, uh, when you look at a sheet, it includes, of course, the information about the people being counted. But at the upper right-hand corner of every census sheet, it also includes a signature of the enumerator, of the census taker, the person who did that counting. And so whenever I look at one of those sheets, I think of it as the the result of an encounter at a doorstep between that person and the person being counted and as a kind of record of a conversation, which means it's really important to try to think not only about who it is who's being recorded, but about that census taker and who they are. I was able to uh, get some records about where those people came from, and in particular, the records for Mississippi, where a influential congressional official who was on the census committee, the committee that oversaw the census, uh, John Rankin had his papers in the University of Mississippi. And so I was able to look there in his papers and try to understand the particular process by which census enumerators were selected. And it was, and uh, very explicitly, a political process in which the, in this case, uh, Congressman uh, Rankin would was able to choose, handpick someone to be a supervisor who would then do the job of picking enumerators. They had formal tests that they would use, some of which of their own design, some of which were then provided by the Census Bureau to help in the selection and meant to kind of guide their decisions. But in the end, one of the most important factors was that, as Rankin would often put it, that his friends, his political friends, uh, be those who are selected. And it's fascinating to see and to look at this, not not purely as a form of corruption, but to see how it is, for instance, that uh, individuals in Mississippi would write letters to the congressmen or to their other political officials making their case for why it was that they needed this work, making their case as sometimes as loyal political supporters, sometimes making their case as people who faced particular needs. So I would see many people who would write saying, you know, I'm a widow or my sister has been supporting uh, her children and needs this work, or I've been supporting my sister and she really needs this work. And so, so there's, there are these interesting ways in which, gendered relations of need are also put forward here. And so from that, then people would be called in, they could take an exam, and those who did well enough would be allowed in to be these enumerators. In Mississippi, uh, it was one of the things that made it different than some others, some other spaces, and probably similar to some other spaces in the South here in 1940, there were that the enumeration force was pretty much entirely white. Uh, There were, by one count, I think, five African-American enumerators out of some, out of a thousand or more in Mississippi. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Uh, In contrast, in Washington, D.C. or in New York, there were many black enumerators who would most likely be then enumerating in uh, African-American neighborhoods. But there was a a much more kind of diverse uh, enumeration force in the Jim Crow South, it was much more likely that all enumerators would in fact be selected to be white. Uh, the, the final thing to say here is, well, we might 
look at this and think that it sounds particularly corrupt, and in many ways it was, these Congress people did ultimately have a very strong incentive to f- get people to count who at least could do a pretty good job because they needed everyone counted. If not everyone was counted, it would decrease the population in their state. And by decreasing the population in their state, it would affect the apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives and votes in the, in the Electoral College. So each person, each congressperson could have their seat imperiled if they did not get a full and accurate count of their community. Now, Chapter 5, I thought this was very interesting. The Mexican-American population, um, they were made default white? Yeah. This was... This this tells us something about the process by which racial categories are constructed. And then I think it also is really interesting because it tells us uh, something about the difficulty of enforcing those categories in the process of enumeration. So the Census Bureau had produced a Mexican race category in 1930. What became clear to many leaders in the Mexican-American community in the subsequent years was that in the Jim Crow South, to be labeled as not white was dangerous. It was dangerous in uh, a context in which ones in which citizenship and rights were very closely tied to the to being granted whiteness Uh, and so mexican-american leaders saw in the 1930s a moment at which there were mass deportations there were what were sometimes called repatriations that involved hundreds of thousands of people, including many of whom were, uh, it's odd to call them repatriations because these were in fact often U.S. citizens who were sent to Mexico during the 1930s. And so so we're seeing this moment at which um, people's citizenship rights, people's uh, hold on their homes is being called into question. And so for that and a variety of other reasons, people within the Mexican-American community working with the government of Mexico convinced the U.S. government to remove the Mexican racial label. And so uh, even as the Census Bureau itself would prefer to keep, many of its officials would prefer to keep that label, it has made the official verdict, and I see this, I know it must have been controversial because I see the census director uh, repeatedly have to write to his uh, underlings and tell them, Whatever you want to, whatever you believe, uh, for henceforth, there's no there's no Mexican racial label. Anyone of um, Mexican descent should be labeled as white in the census. So that was the official word. And these, when the census sheets went out in 1940, they did not include a Mexican racial label. Yet, when we start looking through these files. Uh, so for instance, in my history lab, it was uh, Andrea de Hoyos, who spent some time looking through a, a lot of uh, records in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. And what she found, not surprisingly, was that there were many enumerators who, even though it was not officially sanctioned, wrote MEX or something similar to that under the racial label. So in fact, the 1940 census, in its manuscript files, has many racial Mexicans, people who are understood as racial Mexicans. 
in some of those cases, it may have been that the people who were enumerated would have understood themselves as racially Mexican. Uh, in some cases, as the one I talk about in the book, I suspect that even more substantial was the fact that this enumerator, in this case, a white enumerator, uh, having spent a lot of time wandering around enumerating mainly people in a white neighborhood in Texas, moves into a new neighborhood in which the first people she uh, talks to, she labels as Negro, uh, is going to understand herself as now moving into a segregated part of town and move into, she's living already in a segregated space. And so when she starts seeing people living with African-Americans in this community, I suspect that what happens is that she then is incapable or does can't imagine then seeing people of Mexican descent and labeling them as white in the Jim Crow South. And so she then ends up labeling all these different people, MEX or Mexican. Uh, and we, like so many things in this book, one of the things that I, I have to wrestle with is the fundamental mystery. We don't know how it is that the people who are enumerated really would have understood themselves what we're always left in the end with what's kind of the result of a conversation or a negotiation between the the people enumerated and the records that are left here and the, the enumerator. Uh, but those racial Mexicans, people who are racialized as Mexican in the 1940 census, then disappear when it comes to the time of actual tabulation. So editors in the Washington, D.C. Census Bureau offices go through, cross out all of those MEXs. We can still see them, kind of these ghost lines in the forms today. And they wrote a one indicating the the code for white uh, because it would be the first uh, box on the punch card that would be ultimately punched indicating a racial whiteness. So all of those individuals who had been racialized as Mexican, were then re-racialized as white for the purpose of producing official statistics. Now, in Chapter 6, you talk about the income question on the census, and you gave us this example of Herbert Mace. Can you tell us about that? So Herbert Mace uh, lived in California, and he had been reading or probably actually heard on the radio a um, the, the kind of complaints and the concerns of a New Hampshire senator, Charles Toby, who reported that there would be, for the first time, these questions about individual income on the U.S. Census. And Mace, along with thousands of other Americans, became very concerned about this apparent intrusion into their lives. And I know about this because Toby appeared on the floor of the Senate and said, thousands of people are writing to me about this. And I assumed, like as, as in many cases, or I wasn't sure whether he was telling the truth, but I found his papers in Dartmouth, uh, started working through them. And indeed, there are thousands and thousands of letters from people who, having heard Toby talk about these income questions, expressed a lot of varying concerns. Some of those people were, like Mace, in principle against the idea of having their income um, collected, who understood it as a kind of invasion by the central government that was interested in keeping dossiers. There's references to Hitler, this sort of thing. What was more surprising, though, was 
that most of the letters were not of that variety, that the concerns of these Americans about the income question had less to do with Big Brother, with the central authority, and much more to do with the concerns about an embarrassment of revealing income information to their neighbors who would be serving as these enumerators. So there was a letter that I always found a little bit funny, but also really telling by a, a, a older woman in New Hampshire writing to Toby saying something along the lines of, I make $236 a year or a month, and I don't want the federal government to know. And she would write this to her senator. So, of course, she was actually telling the government exactly this information. But as she elaborated and as she explained, it wasn't him that she was concerned about. It was really the neighbors that she was concerned about. It was the enumerator that she didn't want to have to know this particular information. And she would have to say this directly to that person's face. So it, it this is an interesting moment to think about how the advent of a new set of questions, in this case, income, which was closely tied to the decision, to the kind of project of the New Deal, which was interested in and concerned with raising the standard of living of individual citizens, how that could lead to resistance where people didn't want to to give the kind of information necessary. Uh, But then also how it reveals the particular kinds of privacy concerns that were driving uh, people's fears at this moment. And in a moment when maybe we imagine that like people loved their neighbors and back in the old days, everything was small towns and everyone was happy with one another. It was, it, it isn't, this is not the way, right? And people living in these small towns or in small communities often precisely for that reason really valued their privacy and didn't want their local neighbors to know about their uh, private financial information. The bombing of Pearl Harbor. How did that change the census? So the by the 1940s, the Census Bureau had committed itself to promises of confidentiality. Ideally, the census was understood to be a statistical operation. It would produce numbers about populations and groups that would not reveal information about individuals. And indeed, both the president in declaring the census and the bureau in instructing its enumerators promised individuals that the the information they gave to the census would not be used to harm them. This was deemed as a necessary step to get people to cooperate and to actually give their information to the census, particularly as the bureau was interested in more um, personal information, including things, as we just talked about, like income. The advent of war, and even really in the run-up to war, challenges and ultimately undermined briefly that commitment. And that happened in a couple of different ways, one of which um, I think of as how the Census Bureau which was meant to be a factory of American facts, of statistical facts, is instead repurposed as a as for the mass production of individualized personal data. And so that happens because Franklin Roosevelt wants to create an arsenal of democracy, uh, massive investments in the production of war material 
for the U.S., but also for its allies before it enters the war. And out of concerns about spying or sabotage, whether founded or not, Roosevelt's administration declares that to work in war industry, you need to be an American citizen. But in the 1930s, 1940s, many people didn't have proof of citizenship. They didn't, they were, many people still didn't have birth certificates. It was not until 1933 that they, uh, the birth certificate registration system was closed in which um, we, we would then say that one had a high likelihood that people born after 1933 would have a birth certificate, but many people who would then have been of working age wouldn't have had birth certificates. The Social Security card was only first rolled out in 1937. So that thing which we now so often rely on as proof of citizenship didn't exist. So people who needed to prove that they were citizens often had to turn to the Census Bureau and ask for them to produce a certified copy of their own census record from 1940 or 1930, which showed them listed as a U.S. citizen. And so as a result of this, the Bureau, which in a time when it's trying to be producing the totals for the population is instead producing hundreds of thousands of these certified records to make it possible for people to engage in war industry. So that's one way in which the kind of statistical operation is perverted by the war efforts. A more uh, insidious and uh, damaging weaponization of personal data comes with the bombing of Pearl Harbor that you mentioned and the Roosevelt administration operating with really no good information at all decides that Japanese Americans on the West Coast are a threat. This is proven to be unfounded. It was pretty much understood to be unfounded even at that time by many people with access to intelligence. And so Japanese Americans are ultimately ordered to be removed from the West Coast. Some can move on their own volition and others are, uh, many, many more, are moved to concentration camps in the Great Plains or in some other various parts of the, of the just outside the West Coast. Uh, in this process, the Census Bureau plays played a significant role, first producing small area data, essentially, um, tabulations of small uh, of numbers of Japanese Americans, people who were racialized as Japanese by the census, showing where they were on the West Coast and using that to guide the roundup of people of Japanese descent. And then when, so that was technically legal because it was still technically statistical data, even though it was clearly being used to the, de- the detriment of those who were being um, rounded up. And then in 1942, the War Powers Act briefly in between 1942 and 1947, gave the Census Bureau the authority to release individual data, which otherwise was not supposed to ever make make known. And so it released uh, some individual data, giving the address and names of Japanese Americans, for instance, who were living in Washington, D.C. in 1943. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what is the next project you will be working on? I I certainly can. The one thing I want to add to that last question, just because um, uh, is that it's really always important for us. And I I think sociologists 
uh, hopefully will understand why I have to, I feel like it's important to say this, that that commitment to confidentiality has been redoubled by the Census Bureau since 1947, when that law, uh, was changed back to ensure confidentiality. The story of the use of data against Japanese Americans is important to remember because it's important for us as people who make data to think about how our data might be used against individuals. Uh, But it's also really important that the story has been and can be used to try to discourage people from participating in the census. And And it can be also really to the detriment of individuals and communities if they aren't counted and if they're not accurately represented in the data. So I, I want to just talk about the way, like, emphasize that since World War II, there have been multiple different methods by which, by law and by census practice, the Bureau is, has recommitted itself to the to keeping individual data confidential. Um, so yeah, so to your question, my next project, I... In moving, so I, I've wrote about insurance before. I've now written about the census, and next, I think I, I'm going to be writing about how it is that cities budget. So, in particular, I was struck uh, in 2020, living here in New York City, by the debate over the 2020 New York City budget. That was the the debate um, hinged in part on the question of how and to what degree the New York police department should be funded. So this is the defund NYPD movement, for instance. Uh, and I watching that, I became really interested in how a budget works, how it is politicized. And it becomes very clear when you can start to, to dig into this, that, Budgets are things that run at a particular moment, but have deep histories and are deeply informed by decades and you know more of legal and political structures that make it very difficult to change a budget and that inform the way in which that they are the, the politics around them. So, my next book is going to try to tell, figure out some of the stories behind budget politics in city budgets and try to hopefully make that engaging enough that people will want to read it and therefore have some new ideas about what they can and cannot do in terms of trying to make budgets serve people. Well, we look forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you.